Good morning, IBC family. All right. I think IBC, I think second service has first service beat this week. Wow. Welcome. What a gift. I can't believe that I get to still be here. Every week I come, I'm like, God allows me to do this and be here with all of you. And it's just so amazing. Um, I just love it. A lot of us are going through things right now. Um, so if you'll turn to Luke chapter 6, um, yeah, we've got, we've got things going on in Idlewild. And we're going to look at the calling uh, of the 12 apostles. And, and it's really interesting this wasn't planned. This was totally providential um, that uh, this happened to be the day that we were able to have Teresa and Jeremy come up and speak about how they had gone and followed God's call to go down to the homeless. And oh, how cool. What a cool minute. It's like a, my favorite thing to see people in our church just saying, hey, I see a need. I'm going to go fill it. Uh, and following Jesus there. How amazing is that? And so, um, yeah, may they be an example to you. Love those guys. But uh, we're, uh, there are a lot of people in a crossroads right now having to make decisions, having to um, uh, discern God's will. And so uh, hopefully uh, my prayer is that maybe looking at the, these uh, apostles and looking at God's um, calling and how his character in that and what he calls people to will help us. Luke six twelve. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when, he, when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Oh, our merciful God, we thank you for giving us this day to gather as your church in the name of Jesus. We surrender our hearts and our minds to you, to, uh, that we would partake of your word and that we would be filled by it. Cause us to receive the scriptures with submission and reverence and challenge us to take a look at our lives and where we need to let something go or take hold of something in order to rightly follow you. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us this morning as we open your word, as we receive that which gives us knowledge of you. We give this time over to you and to your word in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I got to participate in Awana by doing an Ask the Pastor segment. And these kids didn't pull any punches. I got questions like, what's your favorite food? Uh, and no joke, none of them... I, I fired that back at them. None of them actually got it. And the leaders didn't. What are, the, what are these Iwana leaders doing during church? You know my favorite food, right? There we go. <laughs> right? So I got a question like, where do you live? Like, what, do you want to take my stuff? Like, right? Um, one of them, are you related to Moses? There, here's one. Is the human race a bike race, a swim race, or a run race? Um, no. <laughs> I don't know. All of the above? I don't know. Right? But one of the questions, this was a good one. It said, why do you want to be a pastor? And I started by answering, 
Who says I want to be a pastor? And I began that answer that way because I was going to tell them that when I realized that God had called me, being a pastor was the last thing I would have ever wanted to do. So I shared the story about how God called me into pastoral ministry and how I told God, no, not a good thing usually. I was about 21 years old. I was in college studying to be an airline pilot. I love flying and that's what I wanted to spend my life doing. In fact, my goal was to spend as little of my life on the ground as humanly possible. I was a nominal believer at best. My, my friend and I would drive to this large church out in Riverside on Sunday nights because it was this cool service. They had some great bands, musicians, guest musicians would come and play and we would sit up in the balcony. It didn't hurt that, that uh, in the balcony was also where many of the attractive girls uh, our age would also congregate that we were afraid to talk to. And the other reason is that we both worked Sunday. I worked at the airport. Um, at French Valley Airport, and uh, the church service um, was on Sunday nights, and so we, sometimes my friend would meet me at French Valley Airport in Marietta, and we would fly to Riverside, because the church we were going to kind of sits right between the two runways at Riverside Municipal. So it was on one such Sunday that I was having a very difficult time, time keeping my attention on the pastor's sermon. I have no idea what he preached about. I like. I even tried lip reading. I'm like looking at his lips, and I, I tried everything. And then I heard from God as I stared intently at this pastor. Some of you may experience God showing you His will. Uh, I know for me that happens often, where it's usually just kind of this knowledge or understanding, where it's just like somehow it's just obvious in your heart. Um, and, and I'm talking about decisions where the options are all biblical, right? Like, if we're in the midst of discerning God's will and only one option is biblical, that's the one that's God's will, okay? But we're dealing with decisions here over what things like, what career path do I take? What, what to major in? Which, you know, what? What theme park to take the kids to next month? Whatever it might be, vacation plans, or what God's, what God's ministry calling on us might be. It isn't easy because we have to discern whether we have this bias that is in the way of us hearing from God. For me, I was confident that my calling was to fly airplanes as much as humanly possible for the rest of my life. But that night, God disagreed with me. And I stared at the pastor and I heard God speak. And I can't like explain like a voice or anything that I could describe, but but I can tell you the words. The words were, that's what I want you doing with your life. And I knew at that moment that God was speaking to me. And so my response was to argue with him. As I sat next to my friend, I silently responded back to God. That is not what you want from me. That I am not going to pursue that. I'm going to fly. I have no interest in being a pastor. Reason number one, their job is not flying airplanes all day. God, you can't ask this of me. You can't ask me to do this. I love flying. I'm good at it. And then I, then I started bargaining with God. And it was, okay, God, here's what I'll do. I know, I know some kids around town, and I'm going to start a little Bible study. And then I can just keep flying and do this little Bible study. And 
And that's what I did. And kids came and they were getting saved and all this stuff was going on. And I stuck with aviation, but I made sure that I threw God a bone by leading this little Bible study with these neighborhood kids. And I spent the next six months where I was more miserable than I have ever been. I was doing everything I wanted to do and I was miserable. I was pursuing everything that made me happy and I wanted to die. And so about six months later, finally I'd had enough and I was working as an aircraft mechanic and I just dedicated this week to fast and pray. And my prayer was basically, God, I think I know what what you want out of me and I don't want that. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Only Lord, please show me clearly because you know that I don't listen very well. And as that week of prayer came to a close on Friday afternoon, my boss walked up to me and he says, I just don't have enough work to keep you on, Jeff. I, you know, I'll call you when I've got more, but I'm sorry, I just, I can't keep you. And I knew what I had to do. It was so quickly that I was involved in youth ministry through Student Venture uh, and at a local church. Um, and, and it all happened very quick and the rest is her history. But what I'll say is that I was teaching this group of middle school kids just a few months later and I realized something as I was teaching. I realized that flying could never give me the satisfaction that I was just then realizing that God was bringing me through ministry. In our passage today, we're going to see Jesus singling out 12 men from among many followers to participate in a special calling. And it was not always easy for them, and the end was definitely not easy for them. And it has not always been easy for me either, nor for many of you here who have followed God into a calling of some form of ministry. And I know that there are a lot of things going on in Idlewild right now, and there are a lot of people in our own church who might be dealing with difficulty in discerning God's will. And I find it interesting that we land on this passage at this time when so many of our people are at a crossroads. And I'm not picking on anyone here, but based on many conversations that I've had in the last few weeks with a number of people, I hope that we can take a look at this passage and learn something about the mind of God so that we might be better equipped to discern God's will. I don't know how God's working in each of our lives or what his plans are for any one of us, but God knows. And so we go to his word. Let's go to Luke 6, 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. Now, the first thing to notice here is the time. This is during a time when Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees. They've challenged his behavior and that of his disciples. Last week we saw that the Pharisees accused him of violating the Sabbath. This is the time context of our passage. The the opposition against Jesus and his followers is growing. We also need to notice that Luke's context context has us within a narrative of Christ's authority. And right now we're going to be looking at his authority to call. The subject of the narrative is Jesus, who is praying to God. But remember that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, or God the Son. 
The Trinity consists of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And when we see Jesus praying or instructing his followers to pray, uh, we see those prayers addressed to the Father. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't pray to the Son or the Holy Spirit, but that's the example that we see in Christ as he prays. I don't really see him praying to himself. So the prayer is toward the object or the Father. <coughs> the second part of the passage uh, the objects are going to be um, his 12 disciples that he names as apostles whom he's calling. We also notice that he's praying on a mountain. Now, we, we've seen that. I think that's particularly hopeful for us here in Idlewild to notice that God loves to use mountains for a special purpose. One example is where he met Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments. And there are many other examples of how God met somebody for a special purpose on a mountain. Jesus appeared on a mountain after he was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And he appears on a mountain at the end of Matthew and gives his disciples the great commission, right? To go out, uh, to make disciples, to uh, baptize them, to teach them. If you were here on Easter Sunday, you might remember us talking about that. So the first verse sets up the context as to where Jesus is and what he's doing. And he continues praying all night. You know, some of us have trouble praying when we say grace before dinner and it takes more than 30 seconds. Can you imagine praying all night? Like, we think of Jesus as God, which he is, and we tend to have difficulty understanding his need to pray. But if anyone's ever dedicated to prayer, it was Jesus. Has anyone here ever tried to pray all night? I'd say the few times that I've ever set out to do that, I woke up the next morning. Praying all night is not an easy task, and yet here, it is precisely what Jesus is doing. And, and, and the following is going to demonstrate why this occasion was so important for him to be praying so intensely. Uh, he would be calling his 12 apostles. One would betray the Lord and be replaced, but that notwithstanding, these would be the most significant and important figures in church history apart from Christ himself. Verse 13 it says, when the day came, he called his disciples whom he ch uh, and, and chose them, rather, from the twelve whom he named apostles, or from them twelve, meaning apostles. He prays all night, the sun rises, the day comes, and he moves from prayer to action. It's important to note. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't pray all night and then wait for the Father to do something. The result of that prayer was that he had a task to accomplish. We know at that point there were 72, or at one point rather, there were 72 disciples in one spot. We don't know how many there are at this moment, but I don't think it would be a stretch to assume that there were significantly more than that. A disciple is simply a student or a follower. It's somebody who follows the teachings of another. Uh, it's a, a learner or a pupil or a disciple. It, and in the rabbinic tradition, tradition, the disciple was like an apprentice. So because the word disciple is not so much in common usage today, I've seen a, a move to use the term follower of Jesus instead. In one church, they had a mission statement, making more and better disciples. And then they changed it to making more and better followers of Jesus. But if being a disciple has an implication of being a student, 
and an apprentice of Jesus, we might lose some important meaning by making that change, wouldn't we? Like, my preference, I think, would be to regularly explain what a disciple is rather than to change the word to follower. Because you might call yourself a follower of Jesus. That's great. Some of us might consider ourselves disciples of Jesus. As a Christian, you, you should consider yourself a disciple of Jesus because that's what you are if you've submitted to Jesus. But do you realize that means that you are his apprentice? That means that you are learning his trade. You are tr in training to be like Jesus. Regardless of how many disciples there were with Jesus at that moment, he calls out 12 of them now then, then to be apostles. Now sometimes we confuse those terms. The apostles were definitely disciples of Jesus, but the terms aren't interchangeable. The disciple was not necessarily an apostle. There were hundreds of disciples and only 12 apostles. An apostle is one who is sent under the authority of another. So uh, apostolos means a delegate or a messenger or one sent forth with orders. It's not a word that was in common usage in pre-Christian Greek. An apostle is an object of the sending. The sending here is done by the authority of Jesus toward those who do not have any authority over whether or not they would be designated as apostles. Because this is so specific and only Jesus can designate an apostle, we know that the office of apostle cannot exist in anyone who is alive today. There are two exceptions that exist in the New Testament. Uh, Matthias replaced Judas Iscariot. We don't see Jesus personally calling him, but all of the apostles prayed and then agreed to name him an apostle. And then Paul claims to have been called to be an apostle of Jesus. But if you recall, he was met by the risen Lord on the road to Damascus and was commissioned by Jesus through special circumstances. The other apostles affirmed that too. And because the other apostles affirmed both Matthias and Paul and never accepted anyone else as an apostle, we accept Matthias and Paul and agree that the office of apostle remains exclusively with those named apostles in the New Testament. So Jesus is here commissioning the original 12 to a very special and unique office. And when he calls these guys, everything's going to change for them. The priorities are suddenly upset and the focus of their lives is permanently altered. And so we have a record, uh, in order that we have a record, he gives us the names. Here it is in, in Luke uh, chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, Simon Peter is always named first, even though his brother Andrew was a disciple before he was. Jesus gave Simon the name Peter, which it means rock, and it's a, a word that was not used as a name in pre-New Testament Greek, but Jesus gives it to him. He's the one who Jesus said would be, uh, Jesus told would be fishing for men. 
You'll recall in Luke chapter 5 that Simon was out fishing with James and John. There were probably other fishermen with them. They weren't sport fishing. It was their job. Uh, and they had caught nothing and were cleaning up their nets. And Jesus told them to go out and cast their nets on the other side. And their boats almost capsized with all the fish that they caught. And so they were shocked. This is what it says in Luke 5, 9. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And by men, he meant people. You need to understand that fish, the fishermen, uh, being a fisherman, it was nobody's first career choice. It was like drywaller, right? You, like you didn't become a fisherman because you did so well in high school. So not to pick on the drywallers. I've known some good drywallers. They're good people. But, but Peter had a family. He was, he was never going to become rich as a fisherman. But it was a living, right? It, it paid the bills. It provided a level of stability for his family. Don't ever think these apostles followed Jesus because he made it easy for them. Peter had to walk away from the only career that he had known, and we're going to see no promise of financial security, stability, normalcy, rest, any of that. Peter was also definitely an ambitious one. He had a lot of ups and downs. You know, he, he was almost bipolar if you read about him. He, he was the one who stepped out of the boat and walked on water by faith, but then also the one who began to doubt and then sink, sank, right? Uh, he said, I'll never deny you, Lord. And then he denied knowing him three times the night Jesus was crucified. Paul, Paul had to correct some of his bad theology to his face surrounding circumcision. Jesus asked people to say that he, people asked who people say that he is, and he got a number of answers. Then he asked Simon Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes the great confession that we all must make if we are to know Jesus. Matthew 16, verse 13 to 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's Peter. And Simon Peter finished his race well. Yes, he had his hiccups, but history tells us that in the 60s AD, he was arrested by the Romans and thrown into the Mamertine prison in Rome, where he was tortured before he was drugged to the Circus Maximus to be executed by crucifixion. But he insisted that he was not 
worthy to die like his Lord. So they honored his request and hung him upside down. I find it quite amusing that the Satanists run around with upside down crosses. I like to point the, I like to point out to them how cool I, I think it is that they're honoring St. Peter by wearing his cross. In fact, this is how ignorant the Satanists are. The upside down cross is known by the name St. Peter's cross and has been as far back as we know. So, yeah, silly Satanists, I don't know. But, um, you know, let's look at the others before I have you here all day, okay? All right, Andrew was originally an, a, a disciple of John the Baptizer, or John the Baptist. All right, the next day, uh, it says in John one thirty-five. John one thirty-five. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus and walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, what are you, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him on that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he's the one who introduced Simon to Jesus. Verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Andrew is regarded as Jesus' first disciple. In AD 70, Andrew was taken to be crucified on a cross shaped like an X. We know from tradition that when he saw the cross that he was to be crucified on, he approached it with great joy, saying, for my whole life has been for the cross. Andrew was tied to that cross and lived for three days before he finally died. James and John were sons of Zebedee. They were known by, by Jesus as the sons of thunder because they wanted Jesus to rain down fire from heaven on people. Um, th th they were tenacious and probably had big personalities and big tempers. I guess they were the Italian disciples. I guess they, were, well, they were Jewish, but they were vicariously Italian. I, I imagine them going around talking with their hands and I, as I'm talking with my hands, right? I, I can relate to them. James, James was the first apostle to be martyred. He was martyred in AD 44. Uh, he wasn't the first disciple. Stephen was the first disciple. We know that. But James was the first apostle to be martyred. In contrast, his brother John was the only apostle not to be martyred. Um, he had it way better. Uh, instead, he would be boiled in oil and banished to the island of Patmos where they put all the most troublesome criminals. And then John went on to write five books of the New Testament. The Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He wasn't a very creative guy when it came to titles. Uh, and then also the book of Revelation. He's known as the Apostle of Love. He writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We see Philip show up early in the Gospel of John. In fact, back in chapter 1, 
John 1, 44. It says, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him who Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like saying, Can anything good come out of Hemet? Well, okay, I won't pick on Hemet. I'll stop. I'll stop. Phil, Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Aside from that tremendous compliment that Jesus pays him, we don't know a lot about Philip. We see him trying to calculate the cost of feeding the 5,000 in John chapter 6. But that, I don't think that was a lack of faith. I think it's just a passing comment we don't really want to read too much into. And, it's, and he's not the same Philip that we read about in Acts, when, he, like when Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. Um, uh, that wasn't the same Philip. Uh, but despite the compliment, Jesus scolds him in John 14. Look at John 14, starting in verse 8. John 14. It says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and, or I, yeah, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Who, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves truly truly I say to you whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father now according to the traditions of church history we learn that Philip went all the way to Gaul or modern-day France as a missionary, he's recorded as being the first to bring the gospel to that region. Uh, and he then spent some time in Turkey where he was stoned and all, uh, almost to the point of death. And then he was crucified. Are we having fun yet? Anybody here having second thoughts about following Jesus? One might say, oh, well, it was easier for them because they were oppressed under the Roman Empire, this oppressive government. Have you looked around lately? I, if you think it would be better to follow Jesus if you're used to walking around barefoot on the dirt, take your shoes off now, throw them in the trash on your way out. Jesus has not called us to take the path of least resistance. Jesus has not called us to a safe and secure middle class lifestyle that most of us live. He's called us to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. And for some of us that... that that could mean poverty and suffering. And for some of us, that could mean we go to our death for him. You might say, well, that's not possible in America. April 20th, 1999, Cassie Burnell was asked, looking down the barrel of a shotgun, if she believed in God. When she replied, yes, she was shot in the head under the table at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. It's everywhere. You see, this isn't just a list of names. This is a list of people who Jesus called to give everything 
for the sake of the gospel. Bartholomew's mentioned in three synoptic gospels and in Acts, but not in John. However, it was widely, it's widely believed that the Nathaniel we just talked about, who Philip had brought to meet Jesus, um, we believe that that's Bartholomew. Because people sometimes had different names. They would use different languages and stuff. But we just read about that. Anyhow, tradition uh, is that he eventually went to Armenia and helped start the first Christian church there. And that got him into some trouble with the pagans who flayed him alive and then chopped his head off. So let's go follow Jesus, right? Later in the fourth century, Armenia, though, became the first nation state to adopt Christianity as its official religion. Way to go, Bartholomew. Huh? Tertullian, I think it was, that said the seed of the, uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As we move into verse 15, we come to Matthew. We read about Matthew. We, we read about him not long ago. He's the tax collector that was named Levi that Jesus partied with, which incited the Pharisees to question his disciples about his behavior. But you can imagine Matthew, at first, none of the other disciples would have liked him. He, he was a tax collector. He would have been seen by any Jew as a traitorous thief because he was a Jew extorting money from Jews on behalf of their Roman oppressors and taking extra from his, from him, for himself rather for, uh, through extortion. But look, Matthew didn't need to be liked. He was loaded. He and all his other tax collector buddies could party it up while all the other Jews went around being poor. What did he care? He had all he needed and then some. He had his nice house. He drove a nice truck. Brand new Harley CVO road glide. Speedboat. You get the idea. He didn't have to worry. He had money and he was well protected by the Romans. Think about what he was giving up to follow Jesus to this. Later on, he plants a church in Ethiopia for which the pagans chopped his head off. We, of course, know doubting Thomas. I think most of us, you know, for most of us, especially me, to criticize Thomas for doubting is a little bit disingenuous. Even Jesus didn't really criticize him, right? Now, now Thomas, it says, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. This is John 20, 24 to 29. We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus wasn't really criticizing Thomas here. He was pointing out that those who believe without seeing are blessed. And, and that doesn't mean that Thomas wasn't blessed. I mean, he saw the risen Lord, right? 
And also, if we read about Thomas, when you go to John 11 and look at the story with Lazarus, uh, Lazarus, uh, uh, Thomas was ready to go to the death with Jesus, right? He was ready to die with Jesus. He was a faithful guy. John 11, verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus had fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Well, he got his wish. Thomas later became a missionary to India and was skewered with a spear in AD 72. But his confession to Jesus, my Lord and my God, remains on our lips today, doesn't it? James, the son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Less, not to be confused with James the Greater that we just read about. Some believe that he had to, that had to do with his age. Others thought maybe it had to do with his stature. Uh, maybe he was a short guy. I don't know. We really don't know much about him, but his mother was one of the Marys who was present at the crucifixion of Jesus and went to the tomb to anoint Jesus with spices. And she actually witnessed an angel announcing the resurrection of Jesus. Wow. It's something to think about as a parent right? Who knows what she had to sacrifice to be a disciple of Jesus? And if, and if James was young, maybe she was a disciple of Jesus while James was a child. One might wonder how that affected her children. But listen, her son James become, became one of only 14 people to ever hold the office of apostle of Jesus Christ. Parents, you don't win your children to Jesus by putting them first. You win them to Jesus by putting Jesus first. James was a missionary to Syria, but he was taken to Jerusalem where he was tried by the Jewish leaders as a heretic and then taken to the pinnacle of the temple where they told him to publicly renounce Jesus. When he would not do that, they threw him to the ground. He survived that fall with a broken leg, so they threw a large stone at his head and killed him. You might remember us talking about the different parties like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes uh, and the Zealots. We talked about them at the very beginning of our series in Luke. The Apostle Simon was a Zealot. And the Zealots looked back fondly at the Maccabean Revolt. And the center of their mission was the liberation from Rome and the independence of Israel. They were very patriotic, if not nationalistic. So to have Simon serving alongside Matthew, the tax collector, was something only Jesus could accomplish. The apostles really were quite diverse, if you, if you haven't noticed yet. Simon was martyred in Syria in AD 65. Judas, the son of James, also known as Thaddeus, or just Jude, he was not the author of Jude. That was most likely written by Jude, the brother of Jesus, uh, half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he was with uh, Bartholomew when they planted the church in Armenia. Other than that, we really don't know much about Judas, the son of James. Uh, 
We do, however, know a lot about the other Judas, Judas Iscariot. In fact, my cousin, when we were kids, my cousin used to use that as an insult. When he got mad at you, he'd call you Judas Iscariot. Did Jesus, did Jesus know that Judas was, as he called him later, a devil at the time that he called him to be apostle, an apostle? He prayed all night, and he comes up with the list. So I imagine that much of that long prayer dealt with the fact that Jesus knew Judas was not like the others. Judas was, however, chosen for the task that he would accomplish. But that brings up a question about God's sovereignty. If God appointed Judas for this evil task of betraying Jesus so that he would be crucified for our sins, how could God hold him culpable for that sin? Here's the truth of the matter. Did God put that evil in Judas' heart? No. Genesis 6-5 tells us that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And if you have a problem with that because it's before the flood, let's go to Romans 3, starting in verse 10. It is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. God didn't have to put the evil in Judas Iscariot's heart. It was already there. All he had to do was arrange the circumstances so that Judas had the opportunity to accomplish what was already in his heart to do. The spirit of Judas was evil. He did what was in his heart. He couldn't say the devil made me do it. He couldn't say the Lord made me do it. Judas was responsible for his own actions. But despite his wicked heart, God called him and used him for his good purposes. Well, if you've read through Genesis, you would have read about Joseph. His brothers were jealous of him. and He was the baby. He seemed to be favored by daddy and and he acted the part, so uh, his brothers threw him in a pit and then sold him to the gypsies. Ended up being drugged all the way to Egypt where he became a slave, he matured, and at some point, despite his in incredible integrity that he had grown into, he was accused of trying to rape his master's wife after he had rejected her advances, and then he was thrown into prison completely unfairly. Eventually, God used him to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. He prophesied there'd be a time of plenty and a time of famine. And Pharaoh made him second in command of all of Egypt. And he successfully stored plenty of grain and supplies um, and to help the developed world get through their, their seven years of famine. Well, lo and behold, Joseph's brothers travel all the way to Egypt for help to get some of that supply that was stored up and they could not have noticed jo Joseph he would have looked like an Egyptian dignitary but Joseph recognized them and he called them in and after putting them through a bit of trouble he revealed himself to them and then he had them all migrate to Egypt so that he could be with his father and, and look what he says to his brothers at the end of Genesis Genesis chapter 50 as for you you meant evil against me. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. 
to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, the brothers acted kind of like a Judas, right? God is going to accomplish his will and his plan. He will not fail to do that. We cannot stop him from doing that, even if it takes a Judas Iscariot. And if you look, every one of these apostles, including the one who would betray him, obeyed his calling regardless of the cost. So the question for this morning, is God calling you to something? I know there are many people here who are at a crossroads. What is keeping you from obeying the calling of God on your life? Listen, Jesus, Jesus said to count the cost. He said to count the cost. In Matthew 8, verses 18 to 22, it says, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and let, leave the dead to bury their own dead. What would Jesus say to you? Luke 14, 33. This is Jesus speaking. He says, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 9, 23 to 24. He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it look like to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Jesus? It, it, it's not going to be the same for each of us, but I think there was a, in a movie I saw one time, there's a little piece of wisdom, and I hate this movie. I, I hate the whole series that it's in. Um, and I'm not going to say which one it is, because I don't want to promote or condemn it. But that said, I, I went to see one of these movies that's part of a series, and I saw this movie under extreme protest, because I didn't want to. But, but the characters were graduating from this little, like, witchcraft school or something like that. And, and, and there was like a dean of the school or somebody, somebody that was in charge. And whoever he was, he made this statement. He said, we all must face the choice between what is right and what is easy. Sometimes even the philosophies of this world can stumble upon godly wisdom without knowing the source. I can't tell you what God's called you to. In fact, I often have a hard time discerning in my life what his will is for me. But if we look at Jesus in the scriptures, he never calls people to take the path of least resistance. Perhaps you have to choose between easy and right. I'm not saying that we choose the hard path because it's hard, but we need to be discerning and remind ourselves how the Lord has revealed the way that he works. We didn't talk much about Matthias or Paul. Matthias replaced Judas. He may have been martyred in Ethiopia. Paul has a long story, but his life was much easier when he was persecuting Christians than when he became one. Uh, when Jesus called him to become the most prolific and effective missionary 
that the Christian church has ever known. He, he, and he did that through constant persecution, through arrests, through beatings, through shipwrecks, and ultimately martyrdom in Rome. Most of us are probably not called to that kind of suffering, the suffering that the apostles endured, but many around the world are. So I want us to ask and think about our hearts what would you do if you were told that if you do not renounce Christ, your children would be taken by force? That's a real situation that takes place around the world. If you could trust God in that situation, knowing that he might let your kids be taken, knowing that he allowed Joseph to be taken and sold into slavery, what is keeping you from accepting his call on your life today? And if you cannot accept his calling for yourself today, what makes you think that you would stand up to persecution? What does it look like for you to deny yourself and to take up your cross and follow him? What does it look like for me to deny myself, to take up my cross, to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Our holy God, we surrender our thoughts and our attitudes to you. Thank you that you have called and chosen us to serve you, not because of our merits, but because of your authority. Thank you for cleansing us of sin and making us new. Forgive us, Lord, for pursuing our wants and our needs and our desires and our appetites instead of clinging to you and walking in step with your will for us. Forgive us, Lord, for trusting wisdom instead of denying ourselves, picking up our crosses and following you. Lord, give us the strength to let go and to surrender to you and to all that you have for us. We confess that we do not want what you have called us to often. And we confess that we would rather not suffer. But with that, we now submit ourselves to suffering, even martyrdom, if that's what you would call us to. Be glorified in us, whatever that cost may be on our lives. Give us strength and joy, even like Andrew's, and be honored in us. We offer ourselves over to you as living sacrifices of praise as we enter this mission field. And we ask that you would give us strength in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.